Welcome to Lunch Hour with Renault. We are so excited to be here today. My name is Amanda Wright, and I have been on staff here at Mosaic for over 14 years, and I get to focus on the weekend gatherings every week. And I love what God is doing uh, through this community here at Mosaic. And just to catch you up, 2019, our vision, one of the aspects of our vision is evangelism. So we've been spending the last few weeks conversing about gospel presence and gospel voice. And last week we talked about the narrative of the gospel as well as the theology of the gospel. And today we are excited to talk about some of the questions and concerns that people might have about the gospel. But we have some questions from last week that we wanted to follow up on. So we're going to jump in with questions from last week. Yeah, we have a lot to cover, so hi, let's get going. Yes. It's going to be a fun day today. <laughs> so Yara is already with us, which is great because we're going to start with her question. Perfect. There you go, Yara. Up, Yara. We told you we would. <laughs> we promised. Since God knows everything, why did he allow the enemy to tempt Eve? Hmm. Yeah, since God knows everything, why did he allow the enemy to tempt Eve? This I have really... no idea, Yara, so <laughs> I'm going to hand over to Joel. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, really, the... The question is, you know, why did God in his sovereignty allow sin to enter the world? I think that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, because it really asks the question, you know, if God who's good and loving, um, you know, created us, why did he allow sin to even be a part of the picture? And really the answer is that God is a God who um, is a God of redemption and that Jesus um, is plan A. He's always been plan A. He was the plan from the very beginning. Um, you know, the Bible says in Revelation um, that uh, Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So Revelation 13.8 shows us that the plan has always been Jesus, that, that redemption in Christ has always been the plan from the very beginning. So from the moment God said, let there be light, Jesus coming to redeem the human race was always plan A. Um, you know, I think um, to, a, to an extent, uh, one of the great wonders, more than mysteries, because it is a mystery, but it is, it is more so a wonder, is the way that this author, God, who has authored this whole story, remember, God does not live trapped in time and space. He, we, are, we are inside of the scope of God's sovereignty. He's not inside of our little world, right? That's right. And so God is the author, the beginning, the end, the, the present of all of it. It's not like it's unfolding for him. It is like talking to the author of a book that had been written, and you're halfway through the book, and the author already has this whole story unfolded. So having said that, what is, what is the wonder is that within this book that he's authoring, there is both the sense that God wrote this book already. So it, it is exactly what it is meant to be. God's intent to reveal his mercy through our failure was already written into the story. Right. God's intent for us to discover grace because we would not have if we had not fallen to sin was already part of the story. Yet, the result of those things are the active participants in the story. And that's the wonder, that there is an enemy of God that tempted Adam and Eve in their choice or their freedom to make choice. And they made a choice. And so there is these active participants that have cause and effect that unfold realities that God is responding to. And yet simultaneously, there is this author that already wrote the book this way. Yeah. And so our privilege is to say the reason that sin entered the world is because the enemy of God who rebelled against God tempted humanity and they were given by God free choice and they chose to rebel. But we can also say simultaneously that was always the story that was intended so that God could make himself known to us in his justice, in his power, in his holiness, but also in his mercy, in his grace, in his love. Yeah. And so we know God more fully, even though the temptation and sin entering the world was intended for our destruction. It was, as always, redeemed by God for his revealing himself more fully to us. And so uh, can we say uh, at the end of the day, the cause was Adam and Eve and Satan? Yes, to an extent we can. But can we say at the end of the day, the cause was the author of the whole story? Yes, we can. And that but is that, the one. And, that, and that's not to say that God caused sin. No. It's, it's to say that God is sovereign over all he, of He wrote this story sin. this way 
allowing within the story for an enemy that rebelled and for free choice in Adam and Eve and for a temptation and for that to lead to death for him to resurrect and bring life. And ultimately to bring It's a pretty amazing thing. And so Adam and Eve had free choice created that way. They lost that free choice when sin entered the world. They became slaves to sin, as did the rest of us. And God's gracious act of love, but God, because of his great love, rescues us from our slavery to sin and sets us free to be enslaved to him and to righteousness, which is incredible. And that is the grand story of God. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Yara says thank you for answering her question. You're welcome. It's a good one. Thanks um, for asking. That's awesome. Yeah. So Leslie had a question last week. She says, are humans rescued by Jesus in answer to Satan choosing to rebel? Like, why did God do this whole plan giving us free will and Jesus slain from the foundation of the world to save us from the fact that humans would always choose their own divinity with their gift of free will, but there is nothing like that for fallen angels? Is our redemption, in part, a justice to the heavens because of Satan's pride? Okay, so there's a lot, <laughs> a lot in this question. I'm glad we While had While Joel a- answers that, I'm going to eat lunch because last <laughs> time I didn't get to eat lunch and you all did, and so this time I'm eating lunch, FYI. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot in that question, and it's a great question. I'm glad we had a week to prepare for it. So (laughs) thanks for that, Leslie. Uh, We love you and appreciate you. Um, But, I mean, I think there's kind of two parts in this question. The first part, really, we did handle just now. But the second part of the question Mm -hmm. is, you know, is is the redemption of humanity some sort of uh, like a cosmic answer to um, fallen angels? And I think that there's really two... Um, two main major categories of creation, Leslie. The first creation category is everything that God created that is not in his image. Um, and angels fall into that. Um, plants fall into that. Animals fall into that. Um, and, and then there's another category of creation that is in the image of God. And only one thing falls into that, and that's humanity. So God created male and female in his image, um, God uses all of creation to display himself, uh, but in his image, mankind is created. Yeah, and so when, when it comes to, um, you know, the nature of angels, there's a lot that you can study on that, which um, is, is super fun. Um, but angels are uh, part of God's creation. They're moral, intelligent beings. And so, um, you know, we see uh, angels um, unpacked throughout Scripture um, as uh, you know, highly powerful, highly intelligent beings who were created in the presence of God um, in heaven, and so we see that um, you know angels who uh, who are fallen angels we now call those demons, and so Satan is um, the uh, I guess you could call him the the lead uh, demon. He's the worst of the worst, and he's the ultimate enemy of God. And everyone that he tricked into following him, um, those uh, we know that, that about a third of the angels fell. So there are the, the ratio of uh, uh, good angels to, to demons are two to one, which is a good ratio. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, but we have um, this race of angels who were created to be in the presence of God, who rebelled against God. They made a moral choice to rebel against God. Satan made a moral choice to say, I want to be God instead of you. And he's condemned for that moral choice. And there's some scripture that that speaks to the fate of those fallen angels. Um, Second Peter uh, chapter two verse four says, "For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment." So um, it, it does say that God does not spare the angels mm-hmm. who sin. He does not spare the demons uh, who sin. Jude six says. Uh, and the angels or the fallen angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept in dark, darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So this idea is that God created uh, angels in his presence um, to glorify him, but the ones who rebelled, I mean, think about how audacious that rebellion is. I mean, you are in the very presence of God and then you rebel against him. And so uh, there's a pretty severe punishment that is just and right that God gives fallen angels, and those are demons. And there is no redemption for them because uh, God created humanity in his image, 
And then when we sin and we rebelled in the Garden of Eden, um, we uh, certainly deserve judgment for that. But God, in his rich mercy, sent Jesus, who, what did he do to, to redeem us? He became a man. Yeah. And so God created us in his image. We rebelled and we fall and uh, fall. We okay. fell. We rebelled and, and we, we fell and we sinned. And so God uh, comes and puts on human flesh um, and dwells among us so that he can pay the penalty for sin as fully God and as fully man, bearing the weight of the wrath of God on the cross, which only God can do, um, but paying the price for sin on the cross, which only a human could do. And so Jesus, the God-man, came uh, to rescue and redeem humanity, and we don't see any redemption of the angelic race. And so that's a lot, uh, but hopefully that I think ultimately, again, this is watching God's beautiful story unfold and understanding that each of us play a part in his story and the human race plays a part to demonstrate his mercy and his grace and his rescue. And the angels played their part as well, demonstrating his power and beauty through them, but also his judgment and righteousness. And so we are as creation, all a part of his grand story that he is writing for his glory and for uh, his revelation so that we would know him. Yeah, no, Michelle, um, Michelle Sanderson responded a while back, and she said, it's fascinating to know the creator was consciously thinking about the outcome of the problem of sin and the fall before the dawn of creation. Wow, just mm-hmm. wow. It's and incredible. It's, just it's incredible. bringing him glory through, through all of that, and that was her response, which is awesome. It which also- is great, Michelle, and I think Wayne Grudem um, does a great job of pointing out that whenever we engage in theology, which is what we're doing right now, mm-hmm. we're we're talking about God and studying mm-hmm. God, it should lead us to worship. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that that's what that does. And it does because it gives you this incredible confidence that though I am stuck in this time and space and I don't know what tomorrow holds, mm-hmm. I have an author God that before time began already yeah. authored the whole story. I mean, that's a big deal. I am safe. I am safe because I'm in his story, not in mine. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. so good. One last question from last week. Uh, If there's a new heaven in Revelation, where do believers go now when they die? That is a great question. Um, I think the, the fact that it says that there is a new heaven does not mean that there is no heaven now or that there's no place we go and we kind of hang out until, me, until then. It must mean there is a heaven now. Exactly. To, in order to be exactly. a new heaven, right? And so... so There is this clarity in scripture that part of God finishing the whole work and making all things new, all things new, is that the dynamic between heaven and earth and the reality of how those function will dramatically change, ultimately making a new earth and a new heaven, a new experience of both. As we understand in the book of Revelation, there will be a collision of heaven and earth in a way that we do not have now, where earth is sin and earth is separate and heaven is separate. Uh, When all things are redeemed, the new earth will be in alignment with the new heaven in a way that makes the new heaven new. And so we functionally will be able to have an experience of the singularity of heaven and earth rather than the separation of the two. And so you see now in that kind of this idea Heaven is what it is today. Earth is what it is today. But in the future, when a new earth is created, it will also create a new reality of heaven and earth. Yeah, it says and in Revelation that the dwelling place of God will be with man. With man. Um, and I think heaven as it currently is, I mean, my, my father passed away when I was very young. And one of the things that I, I take great comfort in in Scripture is because my father uh, was a believer. He loved Jesus. Um, Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yep. So that's in 2 Corinthians yeah. chapter 5, verse 8. It's this awesome picture that we have that as soon as we are uh, away from this physical tent of yep. a body that we live in, in that moment we'll be present with the Lord. And the Bible says that um, Jesus is at the right hand of God in heaven right now. Yep. And so we know that as soon as we die, we'll be with God in heaven, which yeah. is the coolest thing in the world. And And that... Ultimately, the separation between heaven and earth will be eradicated that's in right. the new creation. That's right. And, and that's what's beautiful, right? It's not that heaven, as it stands today, will be wiped out and there'll be a new one. It's that this reality of heaven and earth will be completely new from what it currently stands. And so there will be a unifying and a joining of all of creation together, as it should have been in the beginning yeah, and, without sin. And, and that will happen when Jesus eradicates sin that's and right. death 
which is, and we talk about being right now in the already not yet, that yeah. he's conquered sin and death on the cross and through the resurrection, but he hasn't finally, uh, uh, you know, eradicated yep. sin and death. And yep. when he does, uh, heaven and earth. earth will be rejoined and remade, and we will live with him for eternity, awesome. which is super great yeah. news. Super good news. <laughs> it is. Well, we've got a lot of people joining us today. I want to say hi to them. Lulu and Justin Neal and Josh Taylor, Woody Reeves, um, Obi, Bill Carlton, Sherry, Michelle, of course, Stephanie, Susan, so many What's people. What's up, guys? And we're so glad Great to have, to have you all of us. you with us today. And I yeah. think now is a good time to jump into our conversation today. We're going to be talking about questions and concerns that people have with the gospel that we want to be able to thoughtfully respond to um, in our in our conversations with people. So question one, in our culture today, one of the biggest objections to the gospel is not actually Jesus himself, but on the reliability of the Bible as a whole. Mm. And the first objection they bring up with the Bible is the account of creation. Mm-hmm. Can you guys shed some light on why you think this is so much of an issue and how we can help people understand the biblical account of creation and why it matters? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... You know, the, the, the most obvious uh, reason that I think it's a, it's a big issue is because uh, we have in our world, and I'm grateful for it, an ongoing exploration of the reality of how all this came about. We're exploring the universe. We're exploring the oceans. Mm-hmm. We're exploring the planet. We're getting to know what it means that the planet uh, needs our intervention. I mean, all, all those kinds of things. And in that exploration... When you remove a creator being from the equation and you begin to ask questions, there's no creator, how did this come about? You come up with a a bunch of different theoretical ideas of how it came about. And within those theoretical ideas, as 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 they enter into a societal context like ours, they begin to become... Uh, a factual reality instead of a theoretical reality. And so what ends up happening is the culture begins to say, we know how everything came about because our scientists have told us. Mm -hmm. And so when you tell us in the Bible, there's some fairy tale story about six little days that occurred and flowers (laughs) that were drawn onto a picture. uh, We look at this studious, uh, deep, uh, long haul observation from science and then the fairy tale Bible and the two don't reconcile. And, and I would say that that's not true at all, but that is how it feels yeah. to the culture. Yeah, that's so right. when we enter with the Genesis account and we're like, here it is, the sun went up and the sun went down, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to reconcile that to what the observable cultural science community has presented. And so I think it is important for us to be able to understand what things we do need to stand by from a creation scientific standpoint, biblically, what yeah. things we don't need to necessarily stand by, and, and frankly shouldn't, mm. we, can, we can wrestle with them but shouldn't, and how we can answer with intelligence yeah. this reality. Because the biblic, biblical account does not stand opposed to science. Not at all. It is, in fact, the great revelation of creation. So, Joel, yeah. why don't you share with us a little bit with the research that we've done? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great question that, that, that we need to tackle because mm. people in our culture today are rightly going to ask this question. The Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. Um, And this is what science is revealing in the process. And I think in our culture, what's happening is that we um, are are moving away from a a culture that is uh, basically Christian, you know, where we would accept the idea that God created the universe into a culture that is moving towards not science, but scientism. And, And there's a huge difference between science and scientism. Science says... Um, let's look at the world and let's observe what we can observe and let's learn from what we observe to explain the world that we live in. Scientism says that everything that can be explained about the world must be able to be explained through the scientific method, Mm. which we reject. And here's why we reject that. What scientism says is that everything that we can understand about the world must be explained through observable science. And in absence of supernatural science. In other words, it can't, it can't, it cannot assume that there is a force involved in the reality of creation that we can't observe. And here's why that has to be wrong. So science rightly teaches that the universe had a beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in our cultural context, with, from an evolutionary perspective... Science would teach that the universe's beginning is called what? 
The Big Bang. The Big Bang, right? And, um, and it, is, it is observably true that the universe began at a certain point at a certain time. There is yeah. no argument against that. And We're all on the same page. Yeah, we're all on the same page that the universe had a beginning. Now, here's the problem with what evolutionists will teach, is that the universe had a beginning, but the universe didn't have a cause greater than itself. Right. And here's why, that's the, here's why that's a problem. So, um, you know, we can explain this with, uh, it's called the Kalam cosmological argument. And basically, it says this. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. That's logical, right? Yep. Whatever begins to yeah. exist has a cause. Um, the universe, number two, began to exist, which evolution teaches that, the Big mm-hmm. Bang, it began to exist at that point. So step three, therefore, the universe has a cause. And that cause must be more powerful than the result. So the universe exists. Mm-hmm. It had a beginning. The universe a, can't be its own cause. Correct. It can't right. be its own cause. Nothing because it that is, has a beginning can is, be its its own cause. is its own cause. And this is why we, we believe as Christians and why we, we must believe that God is uncaused. Yeah. That God is eternal. Because if God is caused, then God has something that is more powerful than him. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's also the, why we say God has no beginning total, and no end, yeah, because he is, he is not caused. Right. He is the great cause yeah. of all things. And so um, the universe has a cause, um, and we would, as Bible-believing Christians, explain that cause to be God. Yeah. And, and whatever that cause is must be more powerful than the universe, and... I submit that uh, it would be very difficult for you to find anything more powerful than the universe that is not supernatural. Right. And and I would also say then, you know, we didn't sit around as a human race one day and say, well, the universe existed. We need a cause. Let's come up with a God uh, that's greater. God revealed himself through a uh, a sequence of realities over the span of human history and uh, caused that to be written down. So we don't look at scripture, and and you'll see later on we'll talk about the reliability of scripture as well. Mm -hmm. We don't look to God as an answer to our question. He gave us an answer through his revelation so that we have an answer to our question. Yeah, and I think one of the my most favorite, probably yours too, uh, chapters of the Bible that explains this is Psalm 19, where mm-hmm. it says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his mm-hmm. hands. So, so we recognize the universe must have had a cause. And when we ask, what could that cause possibly be? Well, one of the logical answers would be God himself. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the universe that we live in, especially here on Earth, mm-hmm. and how perfectly fine-tuned planet Earth is for life, yeah. um, that would lend to an intelligent designer, right? Mm-hmm. And so the next step from the Kalam cosmological argument we take is the fine-tuning argument. And we say, okay, the universe, it had a cause. Well, that cause must be intelligent yep. because of how finely tuned the universe is for human life. You wouldn't look at a Ford uh, Model T and think to yourself, Henry Ford must not exist, (laughs) that it just happened. Why? Because there's a design that that comes with that. And so the the finely tuned earth that we live on... And um, the finely tuned universe and the finely tuned realities of everything. Yeah, and so the fine-tuning argument of the universe is the proposition that the conditions that allow life in the universe can occur only when certain universal dimensions, uh, uh, dimensionless physical, uh, oh man, this is a lot. So it can only occur when certain universal dimensionless physical constants lie within a very narrow range of value, which means there is a very, very, very small uh, sliver of possibility that life can exist, and we are in that small sliver possibility. So that if any several fundamental constants were only slightly different, the universe would be unlikely to be conducive to the establishment and development of matter, astronomical structures, elemental diversity, or life as it is currently understood. So, So, I mean, in layman's terms, here's what it means. The universe is so intricate that the chances that this could be as it is without a cause that is intentional and intelligent yeah. 
are zero. Zero. I mean, that's I mean, essentially what that quote says. Zero to the infinite yeah. power. You I look mean, at it and go, not only is must there be a cause because it exists, right. but that cause must be intelligent and purposeful because what exists is not chaotic. What exists is not random. What exists is precise, is perfect in its, in its ability to produce what it has become. And so the argument would be to suggest that what exists has no cause or that the cause it has was random uh, does not make statistical possibility. It doesn't hold any water. And so the reason why we're talking about this, remember, is objections to evangelism. If we're sharing our faith and someone says, I just don't believe the universe could exist, really, you you don't need to memorize all these crazy big terms. (laughs) All we're saying is... This beautifully, finely tuned universe that perfectly sustains human life could not have existed without a cause that was intelligent. Um, And so for us as Bible-believing Christians, we conclude that the one, the intelligent one who caused the universe and finely tuned it to support human life is the God of the Bible. Now, the reason we believe that that intelligent designer Mm -hmm. is the God of the Bible, we're going to get to as we talk about the Bible— and as we talk about the resurrection, yep. those are both really, really important yep. pieces. Because of, the of course, the reliability of Scripture and the resurrection are what confirm that the re- revelation of Scripture, which tells us, which tells us that God is creator, creator, is, is in fact true and exactly. right and reliable. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so I think, uh, in in terms of creation, just as you're thinking in your mind, and you can come back to this. Um, Facebook live session and watch it again and and take some notes because I think some of this is important to get clear in your head so that when you're in a conversation and this comes up, you're not babbling. You don't need all the big terms, but you do need to have a clarity in your head as to the reality behind this so that you can have a scientific discussion with someone, not a theoretical um, religious discussion with someone, right? Uh, There are a couple of things that we must affirm. In other words, that regardless of your biblical view or your creation view, and just so you know, there are a number of biblical views, um, or, or rather, uh, yeah, theories, uh, of creation. theories of creation. Yeah. Um, there is the literal six-day creation or young earth. There's the mature creationism, the flood genealogy, the gap theory, the day-age theory, um, the literal f- uh, framework view. So you can go look up some of these views. They differ but I would say that the, none of them violate the things we need to affirm. I have my view. Somebody else may have a slightly yeah. different view. So but that was actually a, one of our questions was how long was a day in God's time? And, and yep. you're saying there's different views on there that. There are different views on different that. Different Christians and, believe yeah. different things. And, and sometimes that. when you bump into Christians that have, for example, a young earth view or a six day, literal six-day creation, I mean, they are very, very adamant that there can be no other view. And then you, you, you find somebody that has a, uh, the, the view that says uh, that days have a length of time, so that would be the uh, day-age theory. Uh, and, man, they will be very adamant about why. And, and I love that. We should, we should stand on the things we've discovered, but at the same time we need to recognize that some things don't need to be affirmed as a, a non-negotiable, especially when we're having a conversation with someone that doesn't know Jesus, right? Right, and before you get into the things we must affirm, let's, let's just real quick talk about why these different views matter. Um, you know, when, when you're talking to someone who is skeptical about faith in general, and they come from a background that says, well, the world that we live in, scientists are, are looking at the world and saying, it has to be a certain amount of years old, and it's yeah. not in the thousands, it's in the millions or in the billions of years. Um, when we look at um, the biblical account of creation, if it says that God created the universe in six days, uh, and on the seventh day he rested, and then humanity uh, is, is created on that sixth day, then the amount of time the human race has been on planet Earth is not billions and billions of years. So that's problematic. And so that's something that we would need to address. And, and some of those hypotheses within that uh, six-day creation could answer some of those questions. So, for example, uh, the mature creationism view, right? If you believe in six literal days of creation, one of the other things you would also have to believe is that God created the universe to look mature. Yeah. Meaning, we see light from stars that are billions of light years away, which means it takes billions of years for the light to travel so that we can see it, 
Which means the There's only universe, two possible conclusions. Either it's billions of years old, right. or God created it with the light look, already being with us. Correct. So, for example, if you bumped into Adam and Eve the day after God created them, and, you, and Adam said, how old am I? And you observed, naturally, you would say 25, I don't <laughs> yeah. know, 30? Yeah. yeah. Um, and Adam would say, no, I'm one day old. And you would say, that's not possible. Right. A one day old looks like this. Exactly. And you look like this. So God created his initial creative power, created a working universe. And so this automatically answers the question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? There you go. <laughs> the chicken. The chicken came the chicken first came because first it was a supernatural egg. intervention. Right. Now, here's, here's our point, right? <laughs> Uh, when you're having a dialogue with someone that does not know Jesus yet, and you're, this is, remember, this is in the context of evangelism, not in the context of arguing uh, worldviews on creationism, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be able to engage in that conversation without having this become the big issue. Right. So we want to be able to say things that say to somebody, it is important that we understand that God was the cause, that it's an intelligent cause, that he created with purpose. So it, we'll go into some of those. If they say, well, I just think the whole six-day thing is ridiculous, you can say something like this. Well, there are differing theories on that. Um, that, and faithful that faithful Christians hold. Can hold. And yeah. I would love at some point to dialogue with you about where I've landed. So maybe if you're a six-day creationist, right, there is real science to back that. No doubt about it. I've talked with people that hold that view, and there's real science for that. And there's real potential science for some of the other views as well, and there's negotiables. You can say, I'd love to chat with you later about some of that real science, but right now what's important in our discussion is not the nuanced uh, multiple biblical views as much as these things we need to hold to. And, and I think the point is that the biblical account is true. Yeah, it's true. It's how we are understanding that biblical, biblical account. Yeah. We may not be the perfect Bible interpreters right. all the time, right? right? And so there are, there are multiple faithful ways to look at the creation account, which, by the way, exists in Genesis 1 and 2, but it also exists beyond Genesis 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. It's in Job 26, 28, and 38, Isaiah 40 and 45, Psalm 19, Psalm 89, Psalm 90, Psalm 102, John 1, Colossians 1. There's places all throughout Scripture that teach us multiple different things about creation, mm-hmm. and we want to believe all of those things. And we don't want to ignore science while we're no, at it. No, absolutely Does that make not. sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so just being wise enough to be able to have a conversation with someone to say, you know, the earth certainly does seem to be billions of years old. Let's talk about how that might be able to reconcile with the account of right. creation right. in the scriptures. Because the reality is, if you're sitting down with somebody and you want to share the gospel with them, they're not going to be able to hear anything about a God who sent a savior to eradicate sin if they don't believe the first chapter of the Bible yeah. can be yeah. trusted. And I, and I think to Joel's point, uh, just to use a direct example, regardless of which view you may hold of these different biblical create, uh, creation views that, that can align with the biblical account, um, saying something like this, look, um, you know, the scripture in the biblical account of God's creation um, there are there are multiple believers that hold different views, and honestly, whether it is God creating everything to look old immediately because that's how you start something. So, and then you use the Adam thing. The day Adam was created, you would have thought he was thirty-two, but he was actually one, uh, one day old. Or that God actually spanned it over a period of time, and each day uh, is actually a longer period. Both of those actually fit. And they're both scientific explanations. They just both have supernatural intervention involved in them. And that's one of the things we have to assume. Because by definition, saying God is the cause is a supernatural event. It is beyond natural. And And what we can't be as followers of Jesus is Darwinian evolutionists. We we, we can't. Which basically states that the the universe created was, was... created or began with no cause, which we don't believe, and that humanity evolved from a single cell organism and has no connection to the image of God, right. which we cannot which we believe. Cannot believe. So, mm-hmm. so as Christians, yeah. there are things that yeah. we must so, affirm. So what we can do, and, and you know, again, whether you do or not, there's different views. What we can do is say that God created a dynamic universe where adaption is uh, uh, taking place and we, over a period of, say, millions of years, if that were the case, 
that we could see we call evolution the long-term adaption of different uh, species and realities. What we cannot say is that mankind was not created as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because the second we do that, we remove Romans chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. We remove uh, the, the um, creation um, descriptors in Colossians. We remove Genesis 1. Because then what we would have to assume is that Adam and Eve were the eventual result of a long-haul human race. And then the question would become this. If Adam and Eve were in the garden and they fell, were all the humans before them perfect then? And in other words, they were not the original ancestors. The original ancestors were half ape, half human people. Uh, and so do you see how the very nature of theology violates Darwin's Darwinian evolution? Mm -hmm. So there are things we cannot embrace, but we can embrace parts of those things potentially as part of the creation. So what we must affirm in creation is, number one, that God created the universe out of nothing. Yep. Number two. Creation is distinct from God, yet always dependent on God. Number three, God created the universe to show his glory. Number four, the universe God created was very good. Number five, there will be no final conflict between scripture and true science. Yep. That's really important. Yeah. And then number six, secular theories that deny God as creator, such as Darwinian evolution, are clearly incompatible with belief in the Bible. And therefore, if we understand that God is creator, they are clearly wrong too, regardless of the observations we've made. Lots of times we make observations with our limited ability to know, well, and, and we with, make wrong and, and with presuppositions. Presuppositions. So if you are a scientist, and one of the you know, super important parts of the scientific method is observation. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're making observations with a presupposition that there is no God, then that can lead you in the wrong direction as you are observing um, the universe that we live in. Yep. So, yeah. so that's some stuff. I mean, we could talk creation all day long, honestly. Oh, yeah. But I think it is important when you are sharing the gospel with someone, if this comes up as one of their like, yeah, I just don't know about that crazy thing in Genesis, you're going to want to have some of what we've just talked about kind of at your disposal. And remember what it all comes back down to to make that argument not just go away, but give them a confidence that you are scientifically minded, not yeah. just religiously minded, mm -hmm. is to go back to where we started this, which is anything that exists must have a cause. Anything that exists with the intricacy that this exists must have an intelligent cause, and the cause must be more powerful than the thing that exists. Mm -hmm. The universe can't be its own cause. And so we make the assumption that there is a creator then the Bible reveals who that creator is through a consistency of biblical um, reliability and the resurrection of Jesus, which we'll get into in a second. The rest is just dialogue. Yeah, and just one nuanced point within that. It's, it's that anything that had a beginning uh, had beginning. a cause. Yeah, not, um, yeah. not anything that exists has a cause. Yeah. Because God exists, That's right. but I, with I'm no sorry. beginning. Anything that so had a just, beginning. Yeah. You know, the, totally. But what's interesting, though, is like very few people really have had to sit down and think through all of those things. Most people who you're going to be in a conversation with about faith, they've just learned what they learned in the classroom, and they can't, uh, they can't understand how that could fit with what the Bible claims. Right. And it is our job, um, you know, as, as Peter tells us, to always be ready for a defense of what we believe. And, and you know, for everybody who's joining us on Facebook Live today, like, I, I hope that we are a part of a church that not just Renault has done research on Absolutely. why he believes what he believes, or not just I have done research. You can go do research. Not all the stuff that you're going to find out there is helpful <laughs> or good or accurate, but you know, we have the responsibility as followers of Jesus to be prepared to have a response yeah. for what we mm -hmm. believe. So, yeah. so do the work, and there's great resources yeah. out there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I love that people are joining in on this conversation, seeking out new information that they haven't looked in on, but yeah. you're kind of getting like a taste of all of this creation research. Yeah. There's a lot out there. It's the tip of the it's incredible. Um, yeah. and, and you can decide for yourself what uh, holds to a biblical view and your creationism view from that. Yeah, there's some really fascinating stuff yeah. out there. Just yeah. a couple of resources to point people to. Number mm -hmm. one is a great book called Systematic Theology. Yes. Uh, that is a, it's a big one. Um, by Wayne Grudem. By Wayne Grudem. We a sell a, a much shorter version of that, which might be a, a better choice. 
uh, at Mosaic uh, at the Connect Wall, and it's just uh, what Christians should believe. Yeah. Um, and then there's also um, a, a really great podcast that I'd actually recommend uh, to you as well uh, by <coughs> Kenny Ortiz. Some of you may remember he was on staff with us, but it's called Theology for the Rest of Us. Mm. And he digs into some of these questions um, pretty deeply and, awesome. uh, and interviews some scientists and some followers of Jesus, yeah, and cool. it's really well done. Yeah. So Theology for the Rest of we Us. We love Kenny. Yeah, we love and Kenny. And we trust Kenny, so jump in with him. Yeah, it's great. So a few more people have joined us. We've got Heidi Shoemaker. Hey, Heidi. Hello. Alexis and Penny and Emily and Mike Mitchell and Jen Hello. Richardson. We're so glad to yeah. have all hey, of Heidi, you Hey, Heidi, I filled us. out your Safe Families reference for your family, oh, so you guys yeah. will be having a Safe Family reality coming soon. Hey, I love it. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. So uh, if you're just joining us, we are talking about evangelism um, and how people might have different questions or concerns about the gospel. So we've just talked about creationism. Let's go to, um, we've just talked about creation, but we can talk about the reliability of scripture as a whole now. So many people criticize the Bible because Christians claim that it was written by God, but that people wrote the actual books of the Bible. Others seem to be tripped up because there are different versions, and others find verses that seem to say one thing, and then other verses that seem to say the opposite. Is it true that if some of the Bible is wrong, then all of the Bible is wrong? Great question. That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you jump in with us, Joel, on what it is that we do believe, and then we'll talk a little bit about sure. how we know that. Yeah, so um, what we believe as uh, followers of Jesus, Protestant Christians, um, is that uh, the 66 books of the Bible um, are inspired by God, uh, written down by human authors in their language. Uh, The Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Um, The Bible has been compiled or canonized uh, carefully by Jewish believers with the Old Testament and early Christians with the New Testament. Um, The Bible has been faithfully, uh, but not perfectly, translated over the centuries into many languages, including multiple faithful English translations, which we rely on today. And uh, finally, we have a faithfully translated Bible that is uh, with trustworthy copies of the original manuscripts, which were inspired by God and written by man. So that's kind of a lot there. Um, But at the end of the day, what we believe is that uh, the Bible that we have is is trustworthy. Um, at the end of the day, that's what we that's what we believe, yeah. and um, we do believe that the Bible was inspired by God, so it is God's word, and that it was written down uh, by multiple different authors, and we'll get into some of that yeah. uh, in a bit. But those are the things that we believe uh, about the Bible. And to answer the question, you know, if one part of the Bible is wrong or not true, mm-hmm. then the other part of the Bible is, is, is that, that's actually, I think, yes. If yeah. any of the Bible um, that, uh, you know, is proven to be false or proven to be untrue, I don't think we should trust the rest of it right. uh, either. Because at, at least in, in this sense, right, that if the Bible in its content can be flawed. So we're not talking about a spelling mistake in an English translation. No. We're not talking about, because I mean, I, I see that sometimes someone will bring me a, a Bible and they'll be like, there's a word missing in the sentence. The Bible is not true. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about the content of uh, the scriptures as revealed by God through, uh, through authors, if any part of that content is wrong, then there could, uh, there's, there's only two possibilities. That God is not perfect which eliminates God as we know him and the very revelation of scripture itself. So that violates the very revelation of the God who says he's perfect that isn't perfect, right? Mm -hmm. So then God doesn't exist. Or this wasn't written by God, it was written by men. So some things are right and some things are wrong. Like any other book you would read. Any book you read, there are things in it that are right and things in it that are wrong. For this to be a divine document, a a God-inspired document, what the content says must, in fact, be then true and right if God is true and right. And so we do, we do believe. Yeah, and, and you know, when, when you look at the Bible and you study the Bible and you see what the Bible, the books of the Bible claim about the Word of God. That's right. Right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, what the, le- the, the letters to the churches, um, you know, they, the author of the letters of those churches. They 
were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. They were writing for a purpose to a specific audience for a, a a specific time. But they knew that they were writing Scripture. Yeah. And yeah. the early church, they, they looked at the letters from James and from Paul and from Peter as Scripture. They looked at them as the very words of God. And, so, um, and, and Jesus himself looked at the Old Testament as Scripture, yeah. as the words of God. And so yeah. as you look at the Bible as a whole, which the Bible is a collection of 66 books. It's a library of 66 books. Um, from different authors over uh, a long Spanish. period of time. Um, and so we have to see it as a unit, but we all also have to understand that there are individual pieces yeah. of that unit. Yeah. And that if the, if the individual pieces in the unit are flawed, then the unit itself is flawed. Yeah. Because, so of, what, because of what it claims. Which, yeah. I mean, what a high standard, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and that high standard has been held for 2,000 years yeah. and has had incredible amounts of scholarly critique yeah. from no both doubt. non-believing people and believing yeah. people. No and doubt. it is held up yeah. uh, over the test of time. So, so in that, what do we know about Scripture over thousands of years that we've now observed, tested, studied, prodded, pushed, that we can hold to that helps us understand that this thing that we believe is the word of God, inspired by God, written by authors, that is divine, that uh, we can trust it. And here are a couple of things. Uh, First of all, there are 66 books with 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years covering three continents, 755,000, 57,439 words, and all of it creates one congruent perfect message from Genesis to Revelation about the ultimate story of God's redemption, that, that you can see cultural contexts, language contexts, continents, uh, time span contexts all written down, and it's this singular beautiful story. Again, only two possible conclusions. Either that all did happen, which we have evidence that it did, real evidence, and then it's supernatural. Or one guy wrote it in like, you know, AD 12 and uh, secretly said all these other people wrote it, which, you know, is some of the arguments. And then again, you look at it like creation. Like they just, there's nothing about it that, that is possibly, uh, possibly makes sense with that because of the evidence we have. So the congruency of scripture, considering its span, is in of itself an incredible wonder and speaks to its reliability. And, and you know, what we're about to kind of share with you all of these ideas that we're about to share, they kind of work in tandem together. Yep. Um, so the first thing, the con- congruency or the harmony of Scripture is it's a huge testament. Now, if it were just that alone, that wouldn't be enough. Right. Okay, all these people mm-hmm. told one story. Whoop-de-doo. You know, yep. Walt Disney does that. You know, like, um, and, and so if that were just just it, harmony. If that was the only leg we were standing on, yep. mm-hmm. it wouldn't be enough to to To, to say we, we can be certain that this is a divine and accurate go- but, um, reality. Yeah, but yeah. this stool that we're yeah. standing on has multiple legs, yeah. and so harmony is one of Harmony is one of them. Another yeah. leg is historical accuracy, that the Bible, many of the claims in the Bible have been proven. Uh, none have been emphatically disproven. So in other words, there are things in the Bible we haven't yet aligned uh, with history because we haven't discovered all of history yet. It's yes. ultimately the reality. Yeah. But any time the Bible does say something and then we discover history, the history authenticates what the Bible said about something we didn't even know yet. Uh, what we have not gotten is anything that the Bible said one thing about history and it turns out history emphatically proves it wrong. I think one of the greatest examples of this is the Hittite civilization. So the Bible talks about this civilization, the Hittites, and uh, puts them in a specific time frame at a specific location. Mm-hmm. And archaeologists could not find any evidence of the Hittite situ- uh, uh, civilization for, for years. Mm. And it wasn't until, uh, lo and behold, the 1800s. Now, think about that. 1,800 years after Jesus died and resurrected from the dead. Now, we're going to get into that. But 1,800 years go by, and... Christians believe in Hittites, but the world is like, we don't see any Hittites. (laughs) But in the 1860s or whenever it was, they discovered the Hittite civilization. It was a massive civilization. Mm -hmm. It was just undiscovered because that's the nature of 
oh wait, we don't know everything there yeah. is to know. Yeah. Um, and the Bible's an ancient book. It's been around for a long, long time. And so there's been enough time for things like entire civilizations to disappear and then have to be rediscovered in modern history. Yeah. And so I just think that's so great Like um, that the historicity of the Bible has been proven over and over and over and over and over and over again and has yet to be emphatically disproven by any actual uh, real archaeological or anthropological or scientific discoveries, right? It's amazing. And then, of course, you have the prophetic accuracy, which are hundreds (laughs) of fulfilled prophecies um, in, in... Odds that are astronomical. Yeah. So, um, and, and if we start getting into the odds, literally mathematically, it's an amazing thing to watch those numbers play out. But the odds of the prophetic uh, reliability of the Old Testament to the New, and then the prophetic reality of the Scriptures to the whole of history, is extraordinary. Astronomical. And yeah. when you put prophetic accuracy with historical accuracy, with harmony, you start getting to the point where you're like, the statistical probability that this book is unreliable and not what it says it is, diminish to essentially back to incredible. And the, 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 the possibility that this book would be what it is without divine inter- intervention yeah. is Cons- also. Considering the reality yeah. that there were that many authors yeah. who spoke different languages, who never met each other, yeah. who lived... Uh, hundreds of miles and even hundreds and thousands of years apart from, I mean, 1,200 years separate Moses from the, from John, the last, so the first author of scripture, Moses, to the last author of scripture, John, 1,200 years go by. They spoke different languages. They had different cultural experiences and, and the, the harmony. So without divine intervention, yeah, it's, it's not, it, not it really is not possible. Yeah. And then finally, and, and again, there's more, but these are the main ones. Uh, it, it, the, the Bible was written in the presence of eyewitnesses. So in other words, the claims scripture made on multiple occasions were written in a time where the people reading those letters or reading those realities could have refuted what it was saying because there were actual eyewitnesses to those accounts. Right. So that's a really big deal too, that if this was in any way not accurate during the very time it was written, people would have said, hold on, this, this didn't happen. And so when you put all of that together and then you realize that on, on top of that, you have this perception of, of um, uh, uh, contradictions in the Bible. And, yeah. uh, and that'll come up a lot. Yeah. But here's the reality. When you put those four things together and then you start studying the reality of these contradictions, the perceived contradictions, what you realize is that a lot of times the contradictions uh, are in fact a lack of clarity on our part rather than contradictions themselves. Totally. You guys may remember if you were part of Mosaic when we were traveling through the Gospels, we did all four Gospels at the same time. And we said they're like a 3D movie, mm-hmm. each of them layering in a part of the story. And if we try to look at them as comparatives, then we might say this one says one thing, this one says a different in some of the little details. But when you look at them as a layer of a 3D movie, then it's actually this layer says things that this layer doesn't or gives us perspective this layer doesn't. And then contradictions actually turn into revelation and clarity. So that's one example of how you journey through. I will just say this. If you encounter a person in your journey of sharing the gospel with them, and their questions go really, really deep on contradictions, very specific, you are able to say to someone like that, you know what, there are some people I know that have really looked into all of that that I know you'd love to talk with because they really think on that level. Um, But, you know, I don't understand all of it. Your part shouldn't be to try to dialogue with someone that spent three years studying from Yale, the professors that look at contradictions. But you'll encounter that kind of person, one out of 100 people that you share the gospel with. The other 99 are just kind of going, I don't think it's reliable. And when you go historicity, prophetic accuracy, uh, harmony, and eyewitnesses, and contradictions can be explained because I know people that can, and I've looked into it some, that brings about a, a confidence that maybe the scriptures aren't nearly as disjointed or inaccurate as people might have, may have thought that they were. Yeah, and I think that that probably leads us to the next question because the, the primary like hinge point of why we believe in the scripture centers around the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, this is the event in history that our faith centers around, uh, that we believe in 
the resurrection of Jesus, that we believe in a God who came and lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death and then didn't stay dead. Um, and so this guy who predicted his death then was crucified by the Roman government and resurrected. Everything he says, we're going to start listening to. And, totally. um, and so the, the resurrection really does key in. So that was... And since that, we have six minutes for the resurrection, yeah. let's see how this goes. So... <laughs> Well, the, the resurrection question is one of the most central claims of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. People have attempted to refute this claim throughout history. Why do we believe in the resurrection of Jesus? So what I'm going to do for the sake of just our time here, and then we'll see over the next couple of weeks if we play back into this, but I'm, I'm going to go through in, in bullet point just some of the key reasons why the resurrection, again, is irrefutable from an evidence standpoint. And Joel will kind of chime in as we go through any additional things that, uh, as we've looked into this. The the first is this, the disciples as eyewitnesses uh, were martyred. So this is a really big deal because think about this. At the point that of, of the 12 followers of Jesus that observed his resurrection, right? 11 of them died deaths that they were martyred for. They were killed because of their faith. At the point that someone crucifies you upside down, for example, or is going to tear you apart with wild horses or is going to chop your head off, any of those kinds of things, right? At that point, if you stole the body or if you didn't actually observe the resurrected Jesus or if you didn't actually see him ascend into heaven, you might seriously consider saying this has gone too far, right? But none of these guys blinked because they saw Jesus ascend into heaven after he resurrected. That is, to me personally, perhaps the greatest evidence of all, that, that 12 scared men ended up being who they were because they saw a resurrected Christ. Yeah. Then, um, uh, next is um, historic facts that were actually written down by other people than the 12 disciples. Yeah. I mean, you have Josephus, uh, you have Tacitus. Josephus was a Jewish historian um, that the Roman Empire actually, um, uh, what is it, commissioned to write the the history of Jews uh, within the Roman Empire. And, uh, you know, he attributes to the fact that there were eyewitnesses who saw Jesus die, claimed that he had resurrected. So Josephus doesn't claim that Jesus resurrected, but he records historically that the eyewitnesses of the crucifixion of Jesus claimed that he was resurrected. Tacitus does the same, same thing. exact thing. So Paul um, was the greatest uh, opponent to the faith until he encounters the resurrected, the resurrected Jesus, Jesus. Yeah. and that dra- dramatically changes him. James, yeah. he goes from the greatest opponent to, to, to the, the greatest proponent. proponent. Yeah. Um, and so the changed life of someone who had nothing to gain but everything to lose. Everything to lose. Everything um, to lose. Going from, yeah. from uh, opponent to proponent is a huge yeah. uh, demonstration. James, the and brother of martyred. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, you know, uh, how much do you have to be convinced that your brother was actually God to be able to follow him? And James. <laughs> yeah, like what's that going to take? Yeah. Yeah. Like, James, this becomes, is my brother. What's it going to take for my brother to convince me that he's God? Yeah. Perhaps raising, raising from, the, from dead the dead could that'll, be one that'll, of those. That'll yeah. do it. So. Um, an empty tomb, hundreds of eyewitnesses who also became martyrs, uh, faith taking root in Jerusalem. Uh, the Roman Empire and, and Jewish Sanhedrin were well aware that Jesus predicted his resurrection, so they would have worked very, very hard to yeah. make sure that they could present a body after three days. In fact, the plan was that they lock his body away for three days in a tomb with guarded soldiers, bring the body out on day four, stick it up on a stake somewhere and so say, see, he's see dead. Happened. Except they couldn't do that because he ended up actually resurrecting from the dead. It wasn't just a theory. Yeah. Um, and then um, the oddity of the accounts of the resurrection in terms of its discovery. Woman discovering the body, the disciples who were cowards and scattered, becoming people that were courageous. Mm-hmm. Thomas, who didn't even believe, becoming someone that was willing to be martyred. Yeah, if you were going to fabricate this story, you wouldn't do it the way the gospel tells <laughs> yeah. the story. You wouldn't say that women discover the body because women's word was not respected in that time. Um, yep. And number two, uh, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't show yourself to be this coward. If you're mm-hmm. telling the story, you're not going to make yourself look like a doofus in the story, right? Yeah. Um, if you're the one that's fabricating the story and the disciples made themselves look like doofuses yeah. throughout the whole thing because they were until Jesus resurrected from the dead. Yeah. Um, read, the, read the quote from, from the attorney because I think this, <laughs> this does say a lot. This is really good. So uh, this guy, this attorney, he is actually the one you who got one holds... Minute, just so you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He holds the Guinness 
Book of World Records as the most successful lawyer, having 245 consecutive defense murder trial acquittals. Awesome. So this guy, he knows what he's doing. So this is what he says about the resurrection. He says, I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and am still in active practice. I have been fortunate enough to secure a number of successes in jury trials. And I say, unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That's incredible. From an attorney who's the Guinness Book of World Records winner of the most things to win. That's pretty awesome. So (laughs) that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So those are, uh, that was fast, it's bullet point, yeah. but it gives you an idea that there's a reliability to the resurrection, yeah. and I would encourage you to get some resources and study more on this as well. Yeah, yeah and in the conversation, there's been so many good questions. I'm sorry we didn't have time to get to everything this today. This was a lot, yeah. Uh, Josh Taylor and Justin Neal have both listed resources that I'm sure are excellent, and, and we would love for you to check those out. This kind of conversation always just gets me excited and wants yeah. me to dig in more and find out more. and. Just give glory to God for his incredible plans um, for our lives. And I just want to leave you with a verse today. So this says, uh, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope Mm. that is in you. Mm. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's important. That's 1 Peter 3, 15. Thank you for being with us for Lunch Hour with Renault. It's great to be with you guys. really was. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. We will indeed. So that's awesome.